I'm Gregory Berg. This past Thursday, the world learned of the death of American composer Carlisle Floyd, who passed away peacefully at the age of 95, with his place in American music history secure as one of the most beloved opera composers of the second half of the 20th century. To commemorate his life and to remember his legacy, I want to replay an interview which I was privileged to record with Mr. Floyd back in 2012. The occasion was the Milwaukee Florentine Opera taking up his first and most popular opera, Susanna. Here is that interview exactly as it aired back in 2012. We welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show. I'm Gregory Berg. Sorry for some of the uh, computer difficulties that we've been having this morning. We're hoping that won't do too much to uh, interrupt or complicate today's morning show. Uh, published as part one today was an author interview, uh, and an author who has examined the, the place of science in American life. We are postponing that because of something very exciting which became available to us yesterday. We'll be uh, airing that interview next week instead. Um, Part one of today's morning show is actually going to be a preview of performances coming up this weekend, Friday night and Sunday afternoon, of one of the great uh, operatic masterworks of the 20th century, uh, Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. And I had the great pleasure, a thrill, of speaking with the composer himself yesterday. And uh, I want to share part of that interview with you now. But first, a little taste of this beautiful score. Uh, this is a portion of the Act One aria, Ain't It a Pretty Night, sung by the American soprano uh, Renee Fleming off of her album, uh, I Want Magic. Gorgeous music comes from one of my favorite 20th century operas, and much more significantly than the fact that I love it, many people love Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. It's an opera which has been done to great acclaim at the Metropolitan Opera, right down the road from us uh, at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and uh, coming up this weekend to the north of us at the Milwaukee Florentine. And I cannot even put into words how thrilled and honored I am that I can speak for the next few minutes with one of the most distinguished of all American opera composers, Carlisle Floyd, who uh, is looking forward to journeying to Milwaukee 
uh, for the occasion of the Florentines' performances uh, of this work, which is one of a number of superb operas which he has composed. And again, I'm so excited that we can spend a few minutes to learn a little bit about the life and career of Carlisle Floyd and about his most often performed opera, Susanna. Carlisle Floyd, we welcome you to the morning show. Uh, thank you very much. I understand. Very cordial welcome, and I appreciate that. <laughs> and I understand that this phone call is interrupting uh, your packing, actually, for uh, for uh, coming here to the Milwaukee area. Are you? Are you... Well, I'm perfectly happy to have a break. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I'm I'm curious. Uh, how often do you travel around the country when one of your operas is being performed? Is this something you try to do, if at all possible? Uh, it depends. First of all, whether I'm invited or not. Uh, but secondly, it depends on the uh, the importance of the occasion, and uh, whether I know someone in the uh, in the company or, or a conductor, as is in the case uh, this time. I know Joe Matchevich, um, and he was the first person to write me about coming. As a matter of fact. Um, so it's uh, it's hard to say. I certainly don't attend every one that's ever done. Uh, uh, as frequently Susanna's done, that would be virtually impossible, <laughs> I'm happy to say. But, uh, uh, if it's a particular place or a particular personality or a production I want to see or have some interest in or a singer, um, I try to go. Very good. Uh, I am... Anxious to hear a bit about your life, and uh, as a PK myself, oh, I read boy. with great I have my sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> so I read with great interest that you uh, actually are the son of a Methodist minister uh, born in South Carolina. Uh, tell us a bit about your your upbringing, and at what point music became really important to you. Well, I was brought up in a in a Methodist parsonage, and. Uh, uh, after I was six years old. Before that, my father was in college, and before that, he worked at a bank until the, the Great Depression. Um, but my mother and father were both college-educated people, and uh, my mother had been a music major in college, so I had that in my background, and I think fortunately. Um, and I would say that my bringing up was a, a fairly normal bringing up in terms of my interests, and probably more interest than most children. But... Uh, and they were all indulged and uh, encouraged. Uh, I started off by thinking I was going to become a painter because I drew a great deal. And then I was also interested in writing. So in my high school paper, I was editor-in-chief and art editor. So uh, of a very small high school in South Carolina. So I don't know that there was much competition for those jobs. But in any case, they entrusted them to me. Mm. But... Uh, Music became very important to me around age 10 uh, when I began piano lessons, and, and I, uh, I progressed very quickly. Um, so that my then-teacher came to my mother and said she would like to give me extra lessons at no charge. And that was the kind of uh, training I had, which was not terribly thorough in piano, but it's, it's what I had until I went off to college. Um, I had about four different teachers, you know, the uh, usual music teachers in small southern towns. And uh, But I fortunately made a great deal of progress and uh, won a scholarship to Converse College in South Carolina. 
very improbably, as far as my mother was concerned, she had no idea I would win it. But I was granted a scholarship to go there, and which pretty much determined my career. Hmm. And it was there, I believe, that you studied under um, Ernst Bacon. That's right. And that's a significant name in American music and a composer himself. Absolutely. And uh, he became my real mentor. I wonder if you could, before we start talking about your career as a composer, and of course specifically the opera Susanna, I wonder if you could just say a word about... uh, the particular challenges of teaching composition to young students. Uh, as someone who's dabbled a little in composition myself, uh, I, I, am, I, I remember vividly uh, those, those early efforts in which uh, a young composer feels like everything that ushers from their pen is a, is a masterpiece waiting to be discovered. And, and, uh, and, of course, it is typically the job of the composition teacher to uh, disavow them of that notion and and help them realize that uh, they need to work on their own music uh, to make it still better and in many cases work to make it their own. I wonder if you could just first of all speak about the experience of in a sense probably stepping on the toes of that is the feelings of of young aspiring composers. Uh, Has that been a, a hard part of that for you? Uh, no, to tell you the truth, really hasn't, because I think I've been, I, I, my work with Bacon was not what would be called a, uh, a typical academic kind of uh, course in composition. He encouraged me to compose and was very, very uh, uh, urging me to give more and more time to it. And uh, what I would bring to him, he would uh he always received very favorably. So I can't remember any particular criticisms I got from him. It doesn't mean that I probably didn't need some at that point. But I got that, uh, that kind of um, open sesame to, to composition, which he provided, uh, in which it all seemed positive. Uh, and my my students friends would say, why don't you go into composition completely? And I would say, no, no, no. I was thinking they were saying, you will not make it as a pianist, and that just uh, um, girded me even more to become as good a pianist as I could. But uh, so I think as a composition teacher, uh, I was a good bit, uh, I have been a good bit more um, demanding than what was demanded of me as a, as a composer. And so virtually I came up pretty much self-taught. But uh, I don't frankly know that there's a better way, because if, if you're really uh, intent on exploring what makes music music and realize uh, what's going on from your inner ear out, uh, and that that's what you have to work with, there's a great deal that can be done in terms of, of shaping, structure, idiom, vocabulary, all of those things, but those things you can supply a great deal uh, yourself. Hmm. Uh, I, I certainly took every composition student that was ever assigned to me, and I hope did good work with them. Um, but it was, mo- it was more practical, and it was not, okay, this, this uh, semester we're going to do 16th counterpoint, 16th century counterpoint. I'd already had that. And uh, if you have if you have uh, analysis and form and uh, begin to understand the shape of, of the music and or, or 
become fairly expert in that. That's something to pass along to students as well. Hmm. But um, I don't know that that answers your question. No, it does. I think I think another challenge that your answer brings up is the fact that uh, there are probably a few composition teachers out there. I, I'm sure you're not one of them, but where sometimes the temptation uh, is to make their students sound like them, that is, the teacher. And I'm, yes. I'm sure over the course of this long, distinguished career as a professor of composition, you've not been interested in churning out a bunch of Carlisle Floyd imitators, uh, uh, but rather trying to foster the unique voice that each each composer can be. Well, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, I completely uh, avoid that and discourage it. I mean, I had one student who could imitate my sound very well, and I've called him on it, and I told him that I wanted to hear what he had to say, not not as an imitation of me. Uh, so I, I've worked from the opposite ends. Now, there are um, very distinguished composition teachers I know of, who said, if you're not interested in having your music sound like mine, don't come to me. Uh, which I think is just starting off by stifling individual creative impulses. Uh, I, I wouldn't favor that. Uh, my, I figured that my job is to find out what their particular voice is and encourage that and, and to try to uh, develop skill and technique. Hmm. Uh, but never discouraging... Um, Let's just say that I always ask them if that's what they hear. If that's what they, their ear dictates, then I honor that. Hmm. And what we do with that material once it's down is something else again. Then that that's the technical and, me and more mechanical side hmm. that you bring to composition. But uh, in terms of individual voices, we have far too few of them to sti ever stifle them. <laughs> For those of you just joining me, I am speaking with Carlisle Floyd. He is one of America's most distinguished composers uh, with a specialty in opera. And his most often performed opera, Susanna, is about to be performed at the Milwaukee Florentine in two performances this weekend, uh, Friday night and Sunday afternoon. Uh, Mr. Floyd, uh, as we look at your career, it is, uh, it is for opera that you are best known, although uh, there are certainly some other works as well. Can you help us understand why opera took hold of you and why that seems to have been your ultimate destiny as a as a composer versus a composer of symphonies or or uh, or, or or great uh, piano works or whatever i mean uh what is it about opera that drew you and what is it about opera that makes it uh such a a, a great arena for your particular gifts well, uh, I'm very glad you asked that because it's the question I get probably more than any other one. Why opera? Uh, but, uh, and you can imagine that my family was absolutely astonished at any, anybody in the family ever becoming an operatic composer since I went through college and I don't think I ever really saw an opera, maybe one in a, a workshop situation. Uh, <clears throat> so it was not a question of a very um, um, varied background in opera. Uh, as I came to see it, it was a way of combining my various interests and gifts, at least what I assumed to be my gifts, because I went into creative writing in college. Uh, I was always tremendously interested in the theater. Uh, 
and obviously very, very interested as well in, in music. And I also felt that opera had a large audience and, uh, in, in America at that time, which was not being served by, by uh, American composers, in which the emphasis would be as much on drama as music, which I felt from the beginning was a way of increasing our audiences in this country. Uh, and it certainly turned out to be the case, I'm happy to say. Do you, do you think that there's any way in which uh, the, the fact that you didn't grow up steeped in opera, uh, the way some opera composers probably are, I mean, addicted to those metropolitan opera radio broadcasts from the time they were eight or something, I mean, that, that in a sense you came to the genre of opera Maybe, maybe with a certain kind of freshness, because you weren't so deeply steeped in it as maybe some other composers. Is that possible? At least, absolutely. Uh, and that's been that's been singled out as a, uh, is praise. And I'm happy to say that that nothing but nothing makes me happier when my work is referred to as fresh. And I assume that means individual and uh, and free of imitation. Hmm. Uh, I think I brought to it uh, my love of music, and of course, as a pianist, I knew a great deal of music, but I didn't know opera. I knew the, the, the piano literature, I knew symphonic literature, chamber music literature, but I did not know opera. When I was in college, opera was just beginning to make its head uh, or its presence known in universities and colleges, we didn't begin to have anything like we have today with these great university schools of music. Uh, we had, you know, the conservatories. Uh, so I never had any occasion to, um, to, to see opera, and I don't, my only exposure was primarily to recordings, and those were limited. So I, I approached it really uh, as a musical and theatrical enterprise. And I felt that the important thing was to make it as interesting um, for people as um, the films were that we were brought up on in those days. Hmm. And I still feel that way because I think we've had, I mean, when you think about how many opera companies there were when I began my career, I mean, really professional ones, there were about three. <laughs> and now there are 130. I mean, and that's all happened probably within the last 30 or 40 years. Amazing. Um, and I think it's been a large part because of the American singer, what they brought to opera in terms of acting ability as well as voice, and to a, a, a new emphasis on the dramatic element in opera, which had been sadly neglected. The kind of thing that we've seen happen within the last 20 years in which uh, opera singers have been uh, refused roles because of their lack of physical uh, affinity for the role would never have happened when I was coming along in the 50s. Uh, nobody really cared that much about the dramatic side or the credibility. Mm. And but now they care very much about that. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's revolutionized opera. I won't say revolutionized, but probably it's been the, the, uh, the chief reason, along with surtitles, that opera has burgeoned in this country. So, mm. One of the things we notice when we look through your your uh, most successful operas is that 
certain names reappear again and again. Names like soprano Phyllis Curtin, who originated the role of Susanna. Uh, Singers like the great American bass Norman Trigo, uh, a famous uh, Reverend Blitch, although not the original, but uh, someone who originated roles in, in several other of your operas. I wonder if you could just say a word about the way in which particular gifted singer actors like Phyllis Curtin and Norman Triegel were inspirations to you and uh, what significance that had for you as a composer in in crafting roles with particular singers and their gifts in mind well it it was uh, I think it was the finishing of my education my musical education because when I went into writing operas uh, I was I was never had never been taught, nor was aware of the very um, the fine distinctions between what the Germans call Falk, you know, the the, uh, the category of a voice. So as a consequence, uh, the the Reverend Olin Blitch is both a baritone and a bass baritone, but the the role is almost always done now by bass baritone. But uh, just in just basic things like that, in terms of range, in terms of where the voice lay most comfortably for singers. I learned through working with these magnificent artists who were such great singer-actors, as well as wonderful musicians, which is something else, again, that uh, came with the American singers. I can't tell you the admiration I have for the last three or four generations of American singers. They've really revolutionized the opera world uh, because they are so well-prepared musically. They no longer depend on... uh, watching the conductor all the time. They cultivated uh, peripheral vision. They don't require a prompter, although they're given one in the large houses. Uh, All of that was very new in the 1950s and 60s. And as I said, really um, just stretched the boundaries of opera tremendously in this country. And I just had such a, a uh, such great good fortune in having such fine singers to work with from the very beginning, and also having the uh, the major companies of that day. And New York City Opera was the major one that did new work. Uh, interested in my work, and my first three operas, I think it is, were were all done at the New York City Opera. A fine company. Oh, absolutely. Your the the fact that you crafted so many works for these particularly fine, compelling singers, reminds me of advice that I was very fortunate to receive as a young composer from Alice Parker, the longtime composer in residence uh, uh, for the Robert Shaw Chorale. Uh And um, on an occasion, believe it or not, when my wife and I got to take her out for dinner when she visited our local college where I teach, it was my wife who actually asked her, what would your advice be for a, a young aspiring composer? And she kind of cocked her head towards me, meaning that I was the aspiring composer who needed the advice. And Alice Parker's advice to me and to all young composers was to write for specific voices, either your the, the local high school choir in town or for particular singers whose voices you especially love or whose musicality you find inspiring that that is where you are likely to tap into your most unique voice. Whereas if you just try to write some song or some work that the whole world will love, but not thinking about any particular singer or any particular setting, it's likely to be very generic. Uh, 
Well, I think there's a great deal in what she said, because that's the way you learn how to write for a voice, is to write with with that kind of uh, attention to just the vocal detail and what a voice can do and where it's best. And uh, I learned so much from from working with Phyllis Curtin, who was a soprano, and her voice is placed very high. And the one thing I had to learn from from that experience was that in my second opera, I wrote uh, Wuthering Heights, I wrote the soprano role for her, and it was placed really much too high, generally, for for the average soprano. And so I did a good bit of revision of that in the process of that before it was first done. Uh, but you learn how varied voices are, and where voices... Uh, you know, where you have to be careful with them. And that can be learned very much from working with one individual singer. Uh, and also you can get very spoiled in the case of Norman Tregel, who was a, a, a bass, if there ever was one. I mean, But he had a very good top register as well. And not all basses can, can handle F-sharps and Gs. But uh, so you that can spoil you as well. Mm-hmm. So we need to turn our attention to this opera, Susanna, uh, one of the great masterworks. I feel so privileged to have been able to see this at the uh, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, actually on two different occasions, uh, the first time with the great uh, Renee Fleming in the title role and uh, Samuel Ramey and Jerry Hadley also uh, in the cast, uh, a, a beautiful production and uh memorable and moving in, in every way. Uh, tell us what drew you as a composer uh, to this well-known story. Well, I thought it had all the elements of, a, um, uh, of what I felt an opera should have. Uh, I was drawn by its drama, its dramatic scenes, its vividness of characters. Uh, I, it was suggested to me by a writer friend who simply suggested that I up date the the, uh, apocryphal story or book of uh, Susanna, and I had to admit that I'd always heard of Susanna and the Elders. I knew it was a subject for Renaissance paintings, but I didn't know exactly what the story was. So he just sketched it out for me. And immediately I thought, that has wonderful dramatic possibilities, especially if I transfer it into the American mountains. And, uh, And give it all the uh, the kind of dramatic and tension and conflict that uh, uh, that I hope the opera has. Uh, but I saw that from the very beginning. I never doubted the the fact that uh, it would be effective on stage. Uh, perhaps I should have in some cases, but uh, I learned a great deal from it, from doing it, in, in terms of what was required of a libretto because I ended up doing my own libretto, which I've done ever since. Mm. Uh, and I just, I, I think I got very lucky on the first first full-length opera that came from my pen. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think that my instincts for what were, would work on the stage were operating at the same time. Absolutely. It's so interesting to think about the the, the, the task of of writing both the libretto and the score. Uh, with a student of mine, I've recently been looking at the letters exchanged between Giuseppe Verdi and Arrigo Boito, who was, of course, his librettist for his last two operas, Othello and Falstaff. Yeah. And it is so fascinating to read the, 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 the 
exchanges that occur between them over how to fashion the finest possible libretto and the, all the kind of changes that Verdi requested in order to make certain musical things possible. And of course, I suppose for you, there was not, uh, there was not another person someplace off of which to bounce off these ideas. In a sense, you had to bounce them off yourself, uh, right. which would be both simpler and more complicated, I should think. Well, I think it is. I mean, but the, uh, people ask me, would now, would you work with a, uh, a librettist now? And I just say, no, I don't think. I think I would be much too cranky. Uh, I spent <laughs> too much time learning what was involved in libretto writing myself. Uh, that most librettists are not particularly aware of because they usually come from the theater or they're poets or uh, some, something other than a librettist, which is a very specific discipline. Uh, and uh, I, I found it out just by working and also, uh, as I said, just by good fortune. I took a, a subject which was very uh, compact to begin with, and I placed it in the background of a revival meeting scene so that I had, I had uh, my limits set on it in terms of time, um, which just came from the story itself. Um, so I was very fortunate in what I chose. Mm. Generally speaking, of course, when people take a story that already exists and craft it in a libretto, it is a question of scaling back, of eliminating characters, of maybe simplifying the story, and for sure, cutting down the number of words, oh, since, it gosh, takes, yeah. <laughs> since it takes longer to sing something than it takes to, uh, to, uh, to speak something. Yes. Um, what about, for instance, that process of taking something like John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, which you ultimately fashioned into yet another very successful opera? Um, just speak a moment about that great challenge of taking what is already a masterpiece and uh, trying to turn it into yet another masterpiece, but of a very different sort. Well, I, uh, I learned a great deal of, of, uh, of Mice and Men um, when I thought that I knew everything I needed to know about libretto writing, I made a very big mistake. I figured that John Steinbeck, in writing a novella, had done my work for me. So I really just did another dramatization of his book, which was not needed since he had done that for New York and anyway, the Broadway stage. Uh, but I didn't realize it until I was into it by about 18 months and had done all the libretto and about two-thirds of the music, and I felt that something was dreadfully wrong because it was getting so long and it just uh what what happened was that everybody verified that it was a bore which is the, the one thing we cannot have in the theater <laughs> but uh what it what amounted to was my seeing that what i had done was simply do another dramatization i had not fashioned a libretto out of the material uh you know the novella is about 120 pages but it just what it brought home to me once, and I hope for all, was how compressed the libretto really has to be. Because uh, when I look at now that libretto that I first wrote, I can't believe I ever did it, <laughs> because it was so much too long and too extent, inflated and, and not nearly compressed enough. And uh, uh, so my second version, I simply went back to, uh, to to my studio, closed the door, and just said, what is this opera really all about? <laughs> what is this story? And I came up with 
with the basic premise for the whole story, uh, and anything that didn't uh, immediately feed into that had to be scrapped. Hmm. So I started over completely. <laughs> so that the first libretto and the second are very, very, very different. But so much depends on the libretto, doesn't it? I mean, you really can't create well, a, a wonderful opera that, without it. Because people have no idea how much does depend on it. A very dear friend of mine is uh, Thea Musgrave, the composer, and she said to me over lunch one day when she was visiting in Houston when I was living there, she said, Carlisle, I've decided that 60% is really of the success of an opera is due to the libretto. And I think she thought I would be shocked, and I said, Thea, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's perhaps we're being... Uh, I think it's perhaps even more than that. <laughs> uh, but that, as you know, as well as I do, makes or breaks so many new operas. It's really true. Absolutely true. And the fact is that the composer doesn't know what to look for. Mm. Uh, when I've worked with composers, I've always had them do their own librettos first. Not with the idea that they become a librettist, but that they know what to require of one. Mm. Uh, because it's just vital. I mean, we've just seen too many contemporary operas fall on their face because of poor libretti. And that's right, and the most beautiful music in the world cannot redeem a, no. a poor libretto. When I, think of, when I think of your opera of Mice and Men, which I've not yet had the pleasure of seeing on stage, it, it, re, it brings back, though, a, a very pleasant memory of mine in graduate school when I was in search of a new uh, aria to sing in the English language, and I came across the score of your opera, and I knew John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men, so that's what really prompted me to pull that score off the shelf, and then lo and behold, I found this wonderful aria called, I think, One Fine Day, and uh, absolutely fell in love with it. It reminds me of something I heard at the Lyric uh, when I was there in the mid-80s in a, in a uh, special event about contemporary opera, uh, when uh, Dominic Argento said, not enough modern opera composers write arias in their operas. And, of course, that is a charge uh, which, of course, uh, cannot be uh, leveled at you. If there is anything about your operas that I think a lot of singers appreciate is that your scores so often include absolutely beautiful arias that not only m mean a great deal within the context of the whole opera, but also can be taken away from the operas and kind of given life on the, for instance, the recital stage. Was that a very conscious decision on your part that oh, yeah. your operas would include arias? I think that's the, um, that's the beauty of opera. I mean, as opposed to the spoken theater. Uh, these moments of which are crystallized dramatically and something that may last in, in the spoken theater may last 45 seconds or last three or four minutes in, in, in terms of an aria. Uh, and we need those moments of expansion and lyricism because usually that's where the heart of the lyricism lies. But not always, but it certainly is uh, certainly one place. Mm. Uh, so I, no, I, from the very beginning, uh, I felt I wanted to write set pieces. But it's not as easy as that because you have to it has to come very naturally out of the libretto. You can't feel that it's being forced into it. Right. And, of course, uh, your, your arias, uh, one thing that makes them special is that they belong where they are and uh, help bring the character uh, more fully to life. The, uh, the opera, uh, Susanna, has, of course, uh, 
two marvelous arias that are sung by the title character, and uh, and they are so contrasting in that one comes at a time when Susanna is relatively happy, dreaming of life away from where she is, but relatively happy, and, and the other coming uh, uh, when life for her is turning much darker. And just in those two arias, we take quite an emotional journey. Oh, yes. And what happens between them that sets them up. But those, uh, they're, they're poles, dramatic poles in the opera. Hmm. Fleming singing a sublime moment from the last act of Carlisle Floyd's opera, Susanna. Susanna is being performed this coming weekend, Friday night and Sunday afternoon, at uh, the Milwaukee Florentine. And Carlisle Floyd is coming to Milwaukee. In fact, will be in the house uh, for the final rehearsals and for the performance on Friday night. You can go to florentineopera.org for more information on this weekend's performance of this modern masterpiece. American soprano Renee Fleming, whom I was privileged to see at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, performing the title role of Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. This recording from her album called I Want Magic, American Opera Arias, done with James Levine and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. This interview with composer Carlisle Floyd was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2012, at the time that the Milwaukee Florentine took up Carlisle Floyd's Susanna. I replayed this interview on the podcast on June 11th in honor of Carlisle Floyd's 95th birthday. Again, he passed away this past Thursday. He will be warmly remembered, and I count it among the greatest privileges in my many years here at WGTD that I had the opportunity to speak with him.